Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. Bringing us the latest science news this week is Kat Arney and Helen Scales. Coming up this week, how green tea builds strong bones. By exposing cultures of bone-forming cells from rats to these green tea compounds, these researchers have found that the rate of bone growth and the rate of bone strengthening were significantly increased within just a few days. And the new genes involved in prostate cancer. Now, they've discovered nine new gene variations that can increase the risk of the disease by about threefold. Some of these new genes could actually be potential targets for future cancer drugs, which is really important. Plus, how biofuels could be increasing oceanic dead zones, robot surgeons get broadband, and Sarah Castor-Perry looks back to this week in science history and the discovery of Utzi, the Iceman. That's all on the way. First up this week, the world of science news. Now, are you a tea drinker, Kat? I'm um, not really, actually. I gave up caffeine a while ago. and oh, good for you. Uh, I don't really, don't really go for tea. I'm a big decaf coffee drinker, though. Well done. Well, that's very, very good of you, but I am a major addict. I go through phases, but right now, plain old builder's tea, white, white no sugar, as we call it here, uh, builder's tea here in the UK, that's my cup of choice, and I just can't get through the day without it. But if you want a health boost in your daily cuppa, then you could do a lot worse than reach for a swig of green tea, and that's apparently one of the world's most popular drinks, and we can understand why because there's lots of people in China out there and other Asian countries who drink that great tea. Anyway, alongside lots of other potential health benefits that come with drinking green tea, we know already that it could be quite good for our hearts. It has anti-cancer properties as well. But it now seems that compounds found in green tea could be good for our bones as well. Ping Chung Leung and colleagues from the Chinese University of Hong Kong have found have been looking at the effects of um, tea on bone cells. And they've been looking in particular at a trio of compounds called catechins and they're found to occur naturally in green tea. And by exposing cultures of bone-forming cells from rats, those are called osteoblasts, to these green tea compounds, these researchers have found that the rate of bone growth and the rate of bone strengthening were significantly increased within just a few days. What's actually going on in the bone cells? Do we have any idea how these green tea extracts are actually helping to promote bone growth? Um, Well, it seems that some of the bone-boosting effect comes down to the activity of a key enzyme and that's promoting bone growth. And one particular green tea compound called epigallocatechin, or EGC, led to an increase in this particular enzyme activity by 79%, which is really quite a big switch on of that enzyme. Um, It also increased levels of bone mineralisation in these cells, and that's really strengthening those bone cells, making them hard um, with calcium carbonate uh, to make them strong. So EGC also suppressed the activity of cells called osteoclast cells, and they actually weaken and break down old bone and that's part of the natural process of bone remodeling as you go through um, go through life what we really want to know i mean this was work was it done in the lab is it going to work on humans if i drink green tea I don't like it, but if I did, would it be doing me any good? I do like it, actually. A cup of jasmine tea is really my thing. But oh. no, you're quite right. Um, 
this is obviously, these were studies done on rat bone cells, so we need to know if this transfers to, uh, first of all, whether it transfers to human cells. Um, but then also, yes, is it going to be any good if we actually drink tea rather than bathe our bones in tea extract, which we're not going to do? And the research paper at the moment um, doesn't really point out um, really how much the doses of catechins compare in their study to a normal cup of tea, um, or whether you would have any effects if you'd have it, the liquid passing through your di- digestive system. So those are questions that we still need to answer. But earlier studies have already hinted that there could be some real benefits of drinking tea. For example, it has been shown that postmenopausal women who are regular tea drinkers tend to also have denser bones. Obviously, there's a lot of things going on there. That's not a causative um, solution. You know, we don't know it's necessarily tea that's making their bones denser, but it's interesting that that's what's being shown. And I think this study does certainly point towards maybe a new way of approaching bone conditions and treating them, things like osteoporosis, and maybe the activity of these catechin compounds could be harnessed in some kind of medicine of the future. And I think it does go to show that sipping a daily cup of green tea is not just tasty and refreshing in my view anyway, but maybe, just maybe, it's doing us some good as well. Well, from the world of tea, we take a sharp left turn and end up in the world of cancer research. And our research that's literally just published about five minutes ago, so this is real hot stuff here on The Naked Scientists. Uh, scientists at the Institute of Cancer Research and the University of Cambridge, funded by Cancer Research UK, have made another important addition to our knowledge about the genes involved in prostate cancer. Now, they've discovered nine new gene variations that can increase the risk of the disease by about threefold. And they've published their work in two papers in the journal Nature Genetics today, right now. And <laughs> this is as exciting as it gets, I tell you. And uh, some of these new genes could actually be potential targets for future cancer drugs, which is really important. That's really exciting. But what did they do in this research? How did they go about looking at these particular genes? Well, this is another example of genome-wide association studies. We've seen quite a lot of these coming out lately for things like cancer, heart disease, um, these kind of illnesses. And they're very, very big studies. You need to have an international team of scientists and lots of expensive kit to do this but what they do is scan through the dna of thousands of people using the latest uh, genetic technology and what they're doing is searching for tiny differences in the dna sequence between people with cancer and people without the disease so eventually they narrow down their search to just a few small regions and they can pinpoint the genetic variations that might increase the risk of the disease now in the first study the researchers looked at dna from almost 38,000 men we're talking big numbers here and they trawled through over 43,000 SNPs. These are single nucleotide polymorphisms and they're tiny little variations in our DNA. And they discovered seven regions of DNA that are linked to prostate cancer risk. And two of them are in genes that could actually be promising targets for future treatments. That's really great. And you said there was another study as well this week in in Nature Genetics. Yes. So in the second study, the scientists homed in on a region on human chromosome 8. And that's previously been linked to, to prostate cancer risk. It's a real hot spot in the genome for these genes and uh, they did some really detailed investigation and they found again two new variations involved in prostate cancer and now it brings to a total of more than 20 regions of the genome that are linked to prostate cancer risk. So these are genes for cancer and if a man inherits a particular variation then is he definitely going to get prostate cancer? Well that's not the case and we're talking about really subtle variations in our DNA the kind of variations that make us unique you know you have curly hair I have wavy 
baby hair. Um, and there are variations in our genes that subtly affect our risk of cancer. Um, so you can think of genes really like a hand of cards. Some people get really great cards. Uh, it means they're very unlikely to get cancer. Some people have really terrible cards and it means they have a very high risk of cancer. But most of us have, you know, a spread of something some good cards, some bad cards, somewhere in the middle. And then it depends how, through our lifestyle, how we play our genetic cards. So we need to do more research into these new variations. But certainly it could tell us about um, maybe who needs more screening or surveillance for prostate cancer. Or, and this is a really key problem in prostate cancer, who's most likely to have an aggressive cancer or one that's just slow growing and needs monitoring. And again, it could point to, to pave the way for new treatments in the future. Well, let's hope so. That's great news indeed. Well, I'm going to take things back to the world of the ocean again. And oh, you. I know. <laughs> but it's not all good news again, I'm afraid. Debate continues to rage on as to how we're going to solve the ongoing problem of global emissions of carbon dioxide from burning things like fossil fuels. Well, a new study has just come out and it's shown that if we're not careful, then growing crops to turn into biofuels could spell disaster in the sea, which is something we might not expect to see at all. And that's because it could very much much worsen so-called marine dead zones, where wildlife is wiped out by depleted levels of oxygen. Now, this sounds like quite a bummer, really, because I think a lot of people are pinning their hopes on biofuels, but how do fuels grown on land affect the sea? I mean, what's the le- connection? Well, basically, these marine dead zones, as they're called, they're an increasing phenomenon, unfortunately, around the globe. We've talked about them before on The Naked Scientist, and they happen because fertilisers that are applied to agricultural land, and of course that includes biofuel crops as well, so that's where they come in. If a lot of those will tend to end up washing into coastal waters and there they trigger blooms of algae. Usually it's tiny little phytoplankton or sometimes things like seaweeds will grow in abundance. They will eventually die and sink down to the seafloor where bacteria break them down and that uses up all the oxygen in the water. Now, because of this, every year a huge and growing area of the sea becomes anoxic. It has no oxygen and that's really unable to support wildlife. In 2008, the dead zone in the northern Gulf of Mexico was more than 27,000 square kilometres. And that is huge. That's nearly half the size of England. It's the size of the state of Massachusetts. It's enormous. Now, Christine Costello and W. Michael Griffin and colleagues from the Carnegie Mellon University and from the University of Pittsburgh in the US have developed a computer model of that particular area of the, uh, of the ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, and they've used it to predict what might happen if more biofuels are planted. Now, biofuel crops, that is. And that's something that the US Federal government is really pushing for in an attempt to tackle climate change and they actually want to see 36 billion gallons of biofuels produced by 2022. Now if that happens it could well mean that achieving another target which is to curb the growth of that dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is going to be virtually impossible. Oh catch 22. <laughs> I know exactly it's really it's it, it's bad news in some ways but Costello and Griffin what they did was they basically tested various scenarios for how this desired um, increase in biofuel production might be achieved, including using different types of crops. But even if they used grasses, which don't need so much uh, fertiliser, you still see this massive increase in nitrates flooding into the Gulf of Mexico. That sounds really nasty. I mean, it, should we just give up on the whole idea of, of crop biofuels? Is, is there it's, anything it's, that can be done? It's really, it, that, it, exactly. So I think the importance of a study like this is just to really remind us that we've got to think about all the different consequences, the environmental consequences of something like growing crops for biofuels. We talk a lot about its food and so on, and that's important. But also, what other effects is it going to have? But the authors do point out that there are various options available for reducing the impacts of nutrient runoff 
runoff from agricultural land. And that includes things like planting strips of vegetation along the edges of rivers. That's called a vegetative buffer strip. And uh, as well as constructing areas of wetland. And also, if you're very careful about how fertilisers are applied, then that can also reduce the amount that gets washed off. Because we don't want that anyway. That's useless if it all gets washed away and it's not being used to fertilise the crops. So these are the sorts of things I think we should be promoting, especially if but if crop-based biofuels are to have any hope at all of being a solution, a green solution for the future. I've got a vegetative buffer strip. It's called my sofa. You <laughs> vegetate on it. Anyway, our final story in the news uh, from me is one about robot doctors. I love this story. I'm scared. <laughs> As robotic surgery is really taking off, you can uh, have surgeons in one country doing keyhole surgery on patients in another country, it's absolutely amazing. And there's robotic surgery for things like prostate cancer. It's really, really starting to happen now. But the problem is, is that people have been making all these robots, making all these systems in different countries. Uh, but the problem is, is that they don't really all talk to each other. So now uh, researchers are working on new technology to improve compatibility between robot systems that would allow doctors to use the internet to operate surgical robots all over the world. It does sound like really sci-fi stuff. I mean, is this really going? Is this really going to happen? And what are they doing here? Well, the, the researchers have developed a new piece of software called the Interoperable Telesurgical Protocol, and it basically standardises the way that robots work over the internet. So it means they can all talk to each other, um, and you know, the, the software that's operating them and the computers that are operating the robots can talk to all different sorts of robots. And to test it out, they had nine research teams from around the world using. Uh, the technique to operate different robots around the world and in most cases it all worked they could operate pretty much any robot they wanted to and uh, this was uh, carried out in locations in the US in Europe and Asia as well and uh, it was really impressive because over 24 hours they um, connected the robots over the internet at the different locations and they tested how it worked and it's really important because it now means that researchers can test out techniques, they can sort of test out robots all over the place and hopefully it'll, um, you know, really, really start to go somewhere in terms of the research. But, you know, not very good if the internet goes Let's down. Let's hope it doesn't. <laughs> it's amazing the things that the internet can be used for, isn't it? Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now we look back to 1991 as Sarah Castor Perry explains the discovery of Utzi the Iceman, which happened this week in science history. This week in science history saw in 1991 the discovery of Utzi the Iceman in the Utztal Alps between Austria and Italy. He is the oldest naturally preserved mummy found in Europe and due to the excellent preservation he has told us much about Copper Age people. On the 19th of September 1991, Helmut and Erika Simon, a German couple, were hiking on the Schnallstall Glacier when they made a gruesome discovery. After reporting what they assumed to be the body of a modern, unfortunate tourist or rock climber, the authorities made several bungled attempts to remove the body from the ice. They broke the arm of the body, punctured its hip with a jackhammer and managed to rip the clothing around the body. Eventually, they freed the body from the ice and took it to a local morgue. Six days after the discovery, an archaeologist was brought in, and after examining the clothing and the artefacts, such as the axe found with the body, he concluded that in fact it was at least 4,000 years old. It was only after carbon-14 dating of the body by four different institutions that the age of the body was determined. 
Utsi, as he was named, after the mountains in which he was found, was born and died sometime between 3300 and 3100 BC. To put this in perspective, this is between 500 and 800 years before the Great Pyramid at Giza was built and around 600 years before Stonehenge was built. The period Utsi lived in is known as the Copper Age or Chalcolithic period between the Neolithic or Stone Age and the Bronze Age from around 3500 to 1700 BC. Society was already relatively sophisticated in Europe at this time. People had been living in permanent settlements for at least a thousand years and had domesticated crops such as barley, flax and peas as well as animals like goats and sheep. With the start of copper mining and smelting, several changes occurred. Trade of copper ore and pure copper, as well as copper artefacts such as jewellery and weapons, began, bringing wealth to the areas where the ore was mined. The appearance of sophisticated copper weapons suggests conflict between the settlements over resources and the need to protect them. Otzi himself had in his possession a copper axe, the most complete and best preserved example that we have. It would have remained sharper for far longer than a flint axe and so would have been very valuable. Among other items, he carried birch bark containers to carry fire embers up the mountains, a bow and a quiver of arrows, a flint dagger and a net for catching birds and rabbits, all of which are incredibly well preserved given that they are over 5,000 years old. Since the discovery of his body, we've been able to learn a lot about Utsi. The truly remarkable thing about him is his level of preservation – the freezing temperatures and remote location up on the glacier means that there was very little degradation of the body by bacteria and animals. His stomach contents was analysed and we know his last meal involved deer meat, vegetables and fruit and possibly some sort of bread. Pollen analysis, or palynology, has also proved a fascinating tool. The shape of pollen grains is unique to each family of plants. It's easy to tell grass pollen from birch or hawthorn pollen and it tends to be very well preserved due to the robust cell walls in the pollen. The evidence from the pollen in Otzi's digestive tract has told us that Otzi lived in one of the local valleys, ate his last meal in a conifer forest, presumably on his way up the mountain, and even that he died in springtime. How he died has been under debate ever since his discovery, but in 2001 it seemed that the debate might have been resolved. During an X-ray of the body, a flint arrowhead was discovered embedded in his left shoulder, Further exploration of the wound showed that it had severed a major artery and paralysed the left arm. There was also evidence of trauma to the skull and a brain haemorrhage, possibly from a fall after being shot with the arrow. Evidence of cuts and bruises on his hands and arms suggested a struggle in the lead-up to his being shot, although the jury's still out on what this fight might have been over. It is now assumed that the arrow wound and or the head injuries caused his death. Otzi's body is on display at the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology in Bolzano, Italy, along with his possessions. The discovery was hugely important for anthropologists studying that period in European human history, as it's not a period where we have written records, and so we have to rely on evidence from burial grounds and sites of villages to learn about the people and their way of life. Evidence from Otzi's stomach contents, his bones and his skin, combined with the sophisticated possessions and tools he had with him, have allowed us to learn much more about the everyday lives of European people over 5,000 years ago. Sarah Custer-Perry there, looking back at this week in science history. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which featured Kat Arney, Helen Scales and Sarah Custer-Perry, and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. 
As always, there's plenty more science available on our website and in our other podcasts. You can find them all on the web at thenakedscientists.com. We'll be back with another roundup of science news very soon. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.